Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Okay, welcome to Girl on the Gov podcast. We are back. And I just have to raise this point because Samantha and I were talking yesterday and she was planning a TikTok to make. Also, the theme of this week, I feel like, has been TikTok. The amount of times we mentioned TikTok in our Top Stories episode yesterday is insane. But let's bring it up again because we were talking about a TikTok (laughs) you were going to make and talking about how Mercury is Mercury still in retrograde, thinking about a bad news story to drop. Mm. And one, in fact, did and one that. You never want to see a headline like this because breaking overnight, North Korea fired an intermediate range ballistic missile over Japan on Tuesday, triggering warnings from the U.S., Japanese and South Korean officials about the provocative nature of the test. North Korea has engaged in a series of missile launches during the last 10 days, including before and after Vice President Kamala Harris visited South Korea last week. So... Your prayers were answered and unfortunately in a really, really... Frightening. Well, now way. I sound like Spooktober. the devil. So thank you. No, it's Spooktober. Spooktober. I literally, well, guys, for context too, I was just like trying to think. Okay, so let me give. I actually end up using the phrase in a different way in a different TikTok. This also just might be like a weird, like, creative brain thing where you kind of like, or marketing brain thing where like you think of applicable con- like a concept before it has something to apply to. And sometimes vice versa. And for whatever reason, they come to mind. And I was thinking about obviously Mercury retrograde because it's my favorite small talk joke to go to. And obviously my number one scapegoat and everything. Nonetheless, I wanted to make something that was like, well, we thought, or wait, I had it written down. Hold on. Oh, here it is. Are we sure? Again, now I'm going to butcher my own delivery, but like, are we sure Mercury is out of the microwave? Because everyone was making jokes this time around, just the way we did with like the pandemic, like, oh, it's the panorama or whatever, like people are doing Mm -hmm. that for Mercury and retrograde. And anyways, I had that phrase. And then I was like looking at the news and obviously there are tons of good and bad things happening around the world at every moment. But obviously it has, whatever you like put a phrase with has to be not only applicable but it has to just feel right it can't be like you couldn't put that with something that's like too serious it had to be like a silly news story and granted this news was too serious for this as well too serious but i was like i was looking for like a trump gaffe you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. something which we ended up getting one but again i went a different direction with how i we did and we'll go over it (laughs) but i also went a different direction with like how i made that tiktok so we'll we'll talk about it but nonetheless it needed to be something silly that would work with that where it's like wait this is bad but also like lol but it was just the irony that we were talking about like we need a scary news story to drop and like the scariest headline you could ever read dropped off last night and I think these are like most this is pretty much the details we have on the story right now we can't I don't know if there's much more to dive into but obviously we'll keep everyone updated and hopefully 
nothing comes of this because Jesus Christ, that is so fucking scary. But the news story that did drop mm. that absolutely well, like- was applicable to this <laughs> to this catchphrase <laughs> that they came up with uh. was surrounding Herschel Walker in Georgia. He is running for Senate in Georgia. If you don't know who this man is, he it was an eventful night for that Senate race. Mm-hmm. And in the blockbuster story, the Daily Beast reported that Herschel Walker, the GOP candidate challenging Raphael Warnock, paid for an abortion for his then girlfriend back in 2009. You might think, wow, that's nice of him to like, you know, pay for his abortion. He also sent <laughs> a card. He sent a card. Sent a and card. my favorite part about this card, this get well card, which is like, just kind of like something's like funny about that. I can't really put a finger on it. But there is a cup of tea on the get well card and this is literally spilling the tea so much tea i just yeah so but the the catch here is not that he's like you know like a gentleman who's helping this woman pay for her Mm -hmm. abortion but it's because he is strongly opposed to abortion these days without exceptions to rape incest or the life of the mother so the hypocrisy here is just blaring. And according to the Daily Beast report, the woman has a September 12th, 2009 receipt. She got the receipts for $575 for the procedure. Five days later, Walker allegedly sent her a $700 personal check and a get well card that he signed. Sweet man. You know what <laughs> I kind of LOL at because he, you know, is this pro athlete too, is I like somehow like guarantee that he thought sending this card could be like sold as like an autograph or some shit. He's just, you know. I mean, honestly, maybe he's just this isn't his first rodeo, and he's oh, like, I don't think so. Yeah, I doubt it. But Based the Senate on also what his son was be, you know, right? Which we'll also there. get into that too. The Senate GOP candidate already is facing scandals over past violent behavior and inflate and inflated resume as a business. Op- entrepreneur has been forced to acknowledge during the campaign that he had three children outside of his marriage so that broke a few months ago and walker did an interview with fox news sean hannity of course after the daily beast story broke on monday and denied the allegations his campaign said it it planned to sue the publication for defamation and walker called the story a quote flat out lie and suggested democrats planted it in order to win the georgia senate race now let me Um, just stop you right there please Uh, Democrats aren't good enough at marketing and snark. <laughs> They're not good at the like nasty no. game. No. no, like I, they. They're just not Dems, at that level. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. The GOP is great at that. And totally. Do I think Democrats need to be better at some of that shit? Loki, yeah. Yeah. But it's just not, it's not their game, unfortunately. So. Anyways, Walker said, quote, I can tell you right now, I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion. Walker claimed the new allegations have energized me even more. But to make matters worse, Walker's son Christian responded to this story. And I also want to just preface this by this. His son is also problematic in his own right. Oh, my God. Hugely problematic. I didn't realize this was his son either because he comes up on TikTok like a good amount of like the liberal gays giving like their two cents on his bullshit which is like yeah. super right-wing whatever yeah and I just never put two and two together like I was like oh wow this guy sounds like a real piece of work but I didn't know it was Herschel Walker's son right this is just oh that's mm, so much tea so mm-hmm. this is what his son oh be real oh <laughs> be real break brb <laughs> do it live let's do it live so be real break is over here is what the tweet said. I know my mom and, and I a, would really- wait, hold. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> there's like a series of them. Like, guys, these are just a few of the top ones. Yeah. He also went on this morning and added some yeah, videos, saw those. Saw those. which I've watched a few of them. Well, 
the two that I at least saw when I logged on. Interesting. But anyways, I just wanted yeah. to, I wanted to frame that of like, there's some others who definitely go take a look, but these are some top notch ones. Some well, he, he's very much like a, he, he, there's no doubt that he's a clout chaser to the nth degree and mm. that he's capitalizing on this moment, you know, to get the clicks and, and, and such. So I'm sure he's not going to stop talking about this since he is the biggest headline in politics right now. But Anyways, this is what the tweet said. I know my mom and I would really appreciate if my father, Herschel Walker, stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a, quote, family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had us moved over six times in six months running from your violence. I don't care about someone who has had a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some moral Christian upright man. You've lived a life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? Damn. So... The boys are fighting, and Literally. it's just tea-filled, again, to the nth degree. I'm just – we're kind of living, to be honest. Yeah, and I'm so curious how this could impact this race. And not just, mm-hmm. like, them having the family fight thing, yada, yada, whatever. People have their drama. But in terms of the fact that he was supposed to be this anti-abortion, like, pro-life, you know – champion if you will and then clearly not so much yeah. but granted at the same time as i say that like this is the case with so many republican politicians no, totally. and republicans and in general like it's they're against abortion until it applies to them well, and all situation. this scandal their base the base that they're appealing to doesn't care about scandal like it's no. that's become very clear yeah and i think the message here to hammer home is that people in georgia need to turn out to vote like they did in 2020 because right. i think Georgia is a blue state if people turn out, and that's the bottom line. And so if we, you know, Georgia can't mobilize the way that they had in 2020, then I think Raphael Warnock will be in trouble because, you know, if their base turns out and his doesn't, like, then Herschel Walker could literally be in our Senate, (laughs) which is fucking scary. But that's, I think that's really the dynamic in Georgia is just continuing to make sure people turn out to vote, because if that's the case, then I think Democrats really have a clear pathway to winning a lot of these races. So we'll have to see and, you know, see what Stacey Abrams whips out this year, which is always an exciting thing to watch. Oh, Speaking of TikToks, her TikToks, her team is doing like a great job. And it's like, and I, it's not even necessarily like so much like trend related. Like it's not like, oh, she did a great, I don't know. I'm not even thinking of a good trend example, but whatever. Like they're doing these kind of interactions on the street between her Mm. and potential voters. It's kind of like some of these like starstruck moments, but they're like really cool and interesting and they're just doing a great job with it. And I always not only stop to watch, but I I go to hit save because I'm like, this is some good daily inspiration to go back to no matter what. So go check them out. Boost, Boost on social. I do want to make one quick comment on Dr. Oz. Okay. So at the same time as we have this scandal, a brewing, mm-hmm. it's not even brewing. It's really like the coffee is it's served. Yeah. yeah. But Dr. Oz got himself into a little bit of trouble because he's been accused of killing over 300 dogs as a medical researcher. So wait, I, I saw haven't... killed dogs, like some TikTok yeah. about him, but I didn't know the story. He's what? I've been, oh, and apparently, according to the Daily Beast, 329 dogs and 31 pigs. According to the Guardian, of it's 
killing over 300 dogs. Now that is a bipartisan issue. We <laughs> might have to ring the bipartisan bell if people still fucking vote for this man after killing dogs. No, sir. No. This is a bipartisan time oh, to mobilize. <laughs> it's one of those things, Cross too. party lines. Like, like, no, a thousand percent. Pets bring everyone together. And yes. this is definitely one of those moments. I haven't really gone deep into the articles. I've only read the headlines on it. So that is what I know off, oh my gosh. off the cuff. But wow, I just can't. And then the other thing I did see, though, on this particular race's front, because obviously this race is hilarious in the sense that Fetterman is just and his team killing the troll business. Yeah, And there was some heck of Dr. Oz at the Penn State game. And he was literally carrying like a glass of red wine at a football Shut up. tailgate. And Shut Fetterman up. made some, or his team like made some type of comment, like the caption of being like, you know, like obviously this is how you know you're like not from here or whatever. Yeah. But also just or that you're anyone. just like not American. <laughs> no, like you don't go to <laughs> a football. Like, I don't even like football, but like I'm not going to a football, football tailgate drinking a red wine out no. of a wine glass. That's. That's anti-American cool. in every Psycho. way. Well, before we slide on into our interview, which we got a great one in store per usual, mm -hmm. there per is usual. just a few housekeeping items, which we will shout out, which is, first of all, if you haven't gone to check out our social goods, X girl in the gov collaboration collection that says friends don't let friends miss elections and you are missing out and you just need to go check it out and perhaps purchase something in anticipation for this huge election that we're about mm -hmm. to enter so go check it out we'll link that in the episode description the other thing is that we actually have an internship available for college students who are looking for college credit for an internship it is social media it is politics it is digital media it is marketing pr all the things so if you want to learn a range of different skills and get a bunch of amazing experience in a startup life culture then definitely check it out you can go to girlinthegov.com careers and send in your application other thing brand ambassador program if you're not looking for an internship or maybe you can't get college credit for an internship definitely check out our brand ambassador program we are providing um different political networking opportunities. We are bringing together a community of people who want to continue the political conversation, share action items, share resources, share funny memes, whatever it is. And so we'd love to have you. So we go to girlinthegov.com and check out our brand ambassador page, sign up, and hopefully we will get to meet you on a call very soon. And I feel like that's it for my housekeeping. Nope. Do you have anything else? Yep. <laughs> She's not shut me down like that. I was passing the mic to you, okay? Sometimes you just gotta grab it. Anyways, no, I'm kidding. So one last thing, and this is for our politicos that listen to the show. We have a newsletter called Hashtag Viral. It's a paid newsletter, and it is social media consulting right to your inbox. You get to skip the meeting and get the tips and tricks right there, top of the inbox every Tuesday evening. Best practices in social media to, of course, the best, like I said, tips and tricks on how to use coming these... from the best in the biz. Yeah. The best in the AKS. biz. That could be like a ooh, do we make a best in the biz jingle? Hey. I'm not I'm always I'm always down for a good jingle. There it is. There it is. Long story short is we have a paid newsletter called hashtag viral. And if you're looking for help in the social media, 
realm, this is for you. If you know someone that does, this is a great resource to send their way. Also, if you need one-on-one consulting, maybe mm-hmm. need a little more help, we also provide one-on-one social media consulting that includes like a social media audit. We go through your social media. We tell you what you can improve on, what you're doing well, what can help, all the things. So there's that too. But Samantha, can you please introduce our amazing guest for the day? Can, but I can only do that if people slide into our DMs and let me know what color should be my nails next because I'm really bored of light pink. Anyways, so this interview is with Honey Mahogany, and she is an American activist, politician, drag performer, and singer. She first came to national attention on the fifth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. So you guys might know Icon. her. And that, yeah, obviously Icon, and also just in so many ways. So many I ways. Can't. So she's also released her debut, EP Honey Love. But anyways, outside of this list of fun things, she is also the chair of the SF Democrats and the co-founder of SF's Transgender District and candidate for District 6 Supervisor. And honestly, 5 million other things, but we get into all of it. So I'm not going to ruin the fun. powerhouse. Is about to enter. Oh my God. The beyond. Room, enter the beyond. Shop. So, and what is yourself. that phrase that I feel like people have been using a lot? Multi hyphenate? Like someone's like a multi hyphenate, like they have like a lot of different career things. Well, yeah, that definitely applies. Multi dimensional, just. Was, was she like a multi dimensional? Renaissance woman. Oh, when I think of multi dimensional, I think of like a, a prism, like a shape. Well, I think you can apply that abstractly <laughs> to describe a, a human. I don't know. But, anyways. Say your line oh, and yeah, let's get honey, into we're it. So sorry. <laughs> we are losing our minds. Anyways, without further ado, here's honey. You do so many things when we were like thinking about, okay, where are we gonna take this conversation today? We were like, how how do we cover it all? We physically cannot in this one episode, but we want to get into it. So starting with one of these many roles, you are the chair of the SF Democrats. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what is the day-to-day like for that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on this show. This is really fun. And I also love the matching pink microphones, by the way. Thank you. That is cool. (laughs) I kind of want one now. More obsessed with them. Yeah. I So as chair of the Democratic Party, I mean, you know, honestly, before I got involved with the San Francisco Democratic Party, I didn't really understand how it all worked. Like, technically, they're called central county committees. So each county has its own, like, miniature Democratic Party. And that body basically is is comprised of elected members, people who you get to vote for on the ballot that represent your assembly district. And then those people get to Number one, pass resolutions that sort of establish the body's stance on things like, for example, you know, reproductive care. And they also then get to, when there's an election coming up, endorse candidates and ballot measures. And then once they have those endorsements, they are able to send out mailers and say, hey, your representatives on the Democratic Party have supported these candidates, these measures. Here's who you should consider voting for. So that's the real power of the Democratic Party. You know, in San Francisco, we have a very, San Francisco is a really intense place for politics. We have, well, first of all, I should say that it's often been said that San Francisco's politics is like a knife fight in a phone booth because (laughs) things are so intense and cutthroat here. But when you look at like, 
Yeah, yeah. But when you look at like who sits on our body, we have a lot of ex officio members who, you know, are representatives in state and federal government. So we, you know, have a lot of a lot of the state's power, a lot of power players come from San Francisco, like our governor Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco, our lieutenant governor is from San Francisco, our attorney general is from San Francisco, our state controller is from San Francisco, our board of equalization chair is from San Francisco, like all of these people in our state mm -hmm. government are from San Francisco. But then you also look at our federal delegation and we have Diane Feinstein and Jackie Spear, but we also have Speaker Nancy Pelosi is from San Francisco. Vice President Kamala Harris is from San Francisco. So then you're like, oh, I see. There's so much political power concentrated in this really tiny place, a seven by seven miles. That's both a city and county in one. And even that dynamic itself, it being a city and county in one, hyper like sensitizes things because you don't have a city council, you have a board of supervisors, which is a city council member and a county position in one. And the mayor is super powerful because not only is she a mayor, but she's the chief executive officer of the entire county, which mm. is a lot of power. Yeah. Well, oh, we wow. are going to dive into San Francisco politics. I, I live in San Francisco, so I am super <laughs> excited for this conversation. But before we do, we want to kind of like get to know these like local Democratic chapters a little bit. Like everyone kind of has one that they can turn to right across the country. Yeah. So can you kind of explain to like, how does your average citizen get involved? Like, how can they reach you guys? Yeah. And I'm actually really glad you framed it that way, because it reminded me of something else that the Democratic Party does, which is that not only are we sort of, you know, representing San Francisco Democrats, but we also have even within this Democratic Party, specifically for this county, many, many charter Democratic clubs, like dozens of them. And each of these smaller Democratic clubs represent different constituencies. Some of them are from neighborhoods. So like, you know, Noe Valley Democratic Club, for example, or some of them represent, you know, certain parts of the community. Like we have the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club here in San Francisco, which is like, I think our largest Democratic club in the city. And then we also have, yeah, like the Chinese American Democratic Club, so many different ones. And each of these also provides their own endorsements. So they may sometimes match up with our like larger citywide party endorsements, and sometimes they don't. And so people really have a lot of choice on how they can get involved and how they get information about elections based on how they align politically and what their like special interest group or interests are. So if you want to get more involved specifically with the Democratic Party of San Francisco, you can do so by visiting sfdemocrats.org. We have, you can always attend any of our meetings. They're open to the public. So we have, for example, an endorsement meeting for the San Francisco's district attorney race coming up. And then we have our general meeting, which always happens on the fourth Wednesday of the month. So traditionally we take November and December off, but every other month <laughs> we have on the fourth Wednesday, we have a meeting. And then additionally, if you want to like volunteer with the Democratic Party, there are tons of opportunities. So we generally do voter registration drives and tabling. But right now we're really focused on, I believe, three three times a week or maybe, no, I think we're at four now, four times a week. Oh we oh. are phone banking, not nice. just for San Francisco, but actually statewide and across the country to maintain our House majority for Democrats and also hopefully pick up some seats, mm -hmm. which we thought would be impossible, but now it's getting more and more possible. <laughs> yeah, True. Okay. I have a question about endorsements because this is something that we get asked about a lot because we mm. don't endorse ourselves. And the question usually is how do I know, you know, what is behind an endorsement? Like what is the, the legwork that happens behind it? And also like, for example, like what you were saying of like, there might be a democratic club that endorses one candidate and then, you know, the Democrats at large might endorse a different one. Like how do you figure out 
which one to go with and what is like, what's the way to like read between the lines there, I guess, is the question. You know, it's really, really hard because I think politics, we always make it this sort of like life or death situation. And not that it's not important. And sometimes it really is, <laughs> feels like life or death. Yeah. I mean, I know I'm, you know, I'm a social worker and I've seen how policies that are passed really impact people's day-to-day -day lives and can actually, you know, I, I've seen people really suffer because mm -hmm. of policy decisions that have been made. So it's very serious. But also like in San Francisco specifically, I can't speak for any other part of the country, some Sometimes these candidates are like splitting hairs. And so there's a lot to take into consideration. Number one, like, do you hold the same values as this candidate, right? Like, do you believe in all the same things like I talked earlier about, like, you know, reproductive rights? Do you believe in access to that? In San Francisco, maybe that's not as much of an issue, but <laughs> definitely as we are seeing right. across the country, yeah. it is, you know, do you believe, you know, that we need to build more housing? Do you believe that we, you know, need to clean our streets better? Like it could be any sort of thing, like have more trees planted, whatever it is. So candidates will de generally have stances on a lot of these issues, and then that helps inform your should it help inform your decision and many of these if you have a club that you're a part of like a local democratic club like for example the harvey milk democratic club is a very progressive one and so if you identify as a progressive and you know you believe in you know you share their same beliefs then look paying attention to who they're endorsing makes a lot right. of sense right and then i think when you're looking at the san francisco democratic party we have a little bit more of like a i think a broader reach and a broader appeal because i think a lot of people don't know exactly like they're like i'm not as well versed on the issues and so we want we want guidance from a very official body and that's when i think people come to the san francisco democratic party many democratic clubs have questionnaires where they ask mm. questions about all the issues that are important to them of the candidates the candidates submit that and then we we review those and then we have in candidate interviews where members of the board can ask questions of the candidates to get clarification on some of their stances or what they put in the questionnaire and then also, also just ask them general questions to figure out who they are what they want to do and you know whether or not we should endorse them are those questionnaires available to the public for the San Francisco Democratic Party, they are. They're on our website. And many Democratic clubs will publish the questionnaires. Yes. Yeah. I love those. I love like when, you know, SF Chronicle or whatever does those kind of really quick like interviews where they'll ask like kind of the basic questions and the candidate has to answer yes yeah. or no or whatever. And you get a better understanding of where, because especially in SF, which we'll talk about in a second, it's like it is a very progressive city. And so like almost everyone's a Democrat, but that means so many different things or so many different people, yeah. especially when looking at like local politics here. But again, we will talk about that in a second. <laughs> but we also want to talk about your candidacy because you are a candidate as well right now. You're running for the District 6 supervisor. So can you give us the 411 on like what really got you to run for office and run for this spot? And what really, what are some of the main you know issues that you are running on? Yeah, I mean, for me, gosh, what led me to running for supervisor? I mean, politics was definitely not something that I ever thought that I was going to do, which is actually interesting. I mean, classic. I... Classic. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. It is kind of classic, I guess. Yeah. What is interesting, though, is, you know, my... I guess I have a little bit of politics in my family. My grandfather... My, my So I grew up in San Francisco. I was born and raised here, but my family are immigrants from Ethiopia. And my grandfather was a military general and a senator and an ambassador oh, wow. back in Ethiopia. And nice. so 
Yes. But, you know, when the Ethiopian government was overthrown, there was, you know, this military coup and a dictatorship that took over and that all changed. And, you know, my parents immigrated here. My dad grew up very poor, was the son of a tailor, but was really smart and got into medical school and went on to a medical school in Greece on a student scholarship. But because he was organizing against the military coup and takeover of the country, he lost his citizenship. And that's what prompted them to come to the U.S., you know, and none of his credits transferred. He ended up becoming a taxi driver for 30 years to support his family. And I, you know, for my parents, they really believed in the American dream. They believed like hard work, education, you can do whatever you want. And so they sacrificed a lot for mm-hmm. me and my brother to go to um, Catholic school. And even though, you know, I was, I was raised very like in a very Catholic and my dad's side is Orthodox Christian family. And I, there were a lot of things that I didn't, you know, necessarily identify or agree with, mm-hmm. but the parts, I think because of that, because I, you know, didn't agree with everything. I was like looking for things that I could cling to. And when I went to high school, I went to St. Ignatius in San Francisco, which is a Jesuit high school. Big theme or, you know, a real core value that they taught us was being a person of service and being a person for others. And so I really took that to heart and being the change you want to see in the world. And that's what really led me to become a social worker. And so I got my master's in social work from UC Berkeley. And again, oddly enough, we actually took a lot of classes on political engagement and how that impacts social work and how that impacts you know, the lives of your clients and how to do advocacy. And again, yeah. I never thought that I would <laughs> ever need that because all I wanted to do was be a social worker and a case manager and help people. But when I was doing that work, I saw, like I said earlier, so many of my clients who were impacted by many of these city policies, whether it be because the city wasn't funding the services to the capacity that was necessary in order to actually help people. Like one thing that the city habitually does is like they, well, number one, we know like during the Reagan administration, like mental health services were just kind of almost abolished. I mean, completely decimated and they've never recovered since then until this day, cities across the country blame Reagan for the fact that our mental health system is such a mess. And I'm like, it's been what, like half a century since then? Like, why haven't we fixed this? And so, you know, I saw all of that and I was like, gosh, there's gotta be something we can do. So I started organizing, not even around necessarily like getting into politics, but really just like, how do we preserve spaces in the community? And, you know, that's how it got me to be a part of the effort to save the stud and become an owner there, one of the owners of the stud bar here in San Francisco. So I'm a small business owner. And then I ended up organizing and creating the Transgender Cultural District. And I think we're going to talk more about that later. So I won't talk about it too much here, (laughs) but it's pertinent because that all of that showed me how important it is to be engaged in local government, to know who your elected officials are, to be able to contact their offices and ask for support when you need it and how much power those individuals have. And then even more than that is that the power that they have to write legislation that can literally change the law and, you know, really change your lives and impact the way that we do business in San Francisco, impact the way that we build housing in San Francisco, provide services in San Francisco. So that's what really led me to get involved in politics. So I was appointed to the Democratic Party, then was elected to the Democratic Party and became its chair here in San Francisco, and then started working for the previous supervisor, Matt Haney, as his chief of staff for the last four years on many of the issues that, you know, 
were most important to District 6, which is the south of Market, which is where we're running. I mean, building housing is definitely one of them. Public safety, though, is probably the most important issue and the thing that I've worked hardest on addressing, both in terms of making sure that we have things like public safety ambassadors and community ambassadors on the streets, like keeping an eye out and helping folks, but also that we hold our police department accountable. Because I will tell you that the number one thing that I've heard and experienced as a small business owner and as a resident is that sometimes the police will just will be there but they won't do anything about anything and that is really frustrating because you know they are paid very well to do their job which is to enforce the law and they don't again as someone who grew up here in san francisco like I have family in SFPD. I have friends in SFPD. I get it. I know why my friends and family got into it, which is really to be of service to the city of San Francisco. But I will say that there is that there needs to be some accountability for them, both in terms of a lot of the crazy stuff that we've seen over the years that has happened in terms of racism and, you know, that kind of stuff, but also in terms of like, you know, we need you to enforce the law. And the way that we, I think, as a city can support them, you know, I mean, you know, we have conversations a lot about like giving defunding SFPD versus like giving SFPD more money. And honestly, a lot of these conversations are normal normal convos that happen every year due to the city's budget process. There are always regular labor negotiations and raises that happen. And, you know, it's just how it goes. And we, we absolutely can do more than just, you know, raise salaries, we can also support them by taking things off their plates. You know, that's mm-hmm. why we fought really hard to write the legislation that created Mental Health San Francisco, which which created a street crisis response team so that people experiencing mental health crisis on the streets didn't get a police response where, you know, things could get out of hand and the police don't have the training to deal with them. They now get paramedics and mental health professionals that are going to take them in, take them into the hospital and hopefully get the care that they need to get stabilized. And we can do the same thing with homelessness. Actually, the Board of Supervisors put $3 million in the city's budget three years ago, that still has not been implemented to create a street, to create a CART, a compassion alternative response team to actually go and deal with homeless people living on the street so that the police don't have to do that. Because the police really? actually aren't responding to those calls because they don't have the time. So yeah. instead of just ignoring those calls, let's actually fund a team to do that yeah. work. So anyway, all of these things, just being passionate about San Francisco, being growing up here, loving the city. It was a city that provided refuge for my family, a city where I found myself time and again through, you know, the nightlife, through arts and culture, through social work. I've been doing this work a really long time. And I just, I think that in some ways I'm uniquely positioned to be able to handle this, the crisis that we're in now, both as a small business owner and seeing how business has been decimated in San Francisco, especially in the South of Market, but also as a social worker who literally has spent the last 20 years getting folks off the streets and into housing and getting folks into recovery. That is something that is really important to me. And I know it both from, again, the ground level, but also policy work in city government. Mm-hmm. Wow, absolutely. Well, we do want to get some basic questions checked, you know, check marked off because I feel like in every city, every county, every state, the terms are just different. And we've been working on, you know, sort of a glossary episode of, of all of these terms, but we want to get the basics down for SF. And that means we have to ask, what is a district supervisor? What does it do? Like, what are the what are the roles or the, you know, the to-do list that gets put to the district supervisor? Yeah. So I think I mentioned a little bit about how San Francisco is a city and county in one. And so we don't have a city council. I think many cities have city councils. We don't have that. We, because we're a city and county in one, the, the city both the city council and the board of supervisors, which is basically a county position, are combined into one. And the county 
and I guess in most counties, I'm not as well versed because, you know, I was grew up here. And so I'm very familiar with the San Francisco system. But I think in other counties, the way that it works is that the city council members are elected to basically represent their neighborhoods or districts. And then they 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 can, you know, write legislation and do all of those things. But they have less to do with sort of like oversight of city departments and they don't have less to do with the city's budget. The board of supervisors is a county position that has much more oversight capacity and also oversees the city's budget to an extent. So we, and they're generally, and the county is also generally, there's usually a county executive that helps sort of manage all of that and is sort of the chief executive officer of the county level. But again, in San Francisco, it's sort of combined into one. So the Board of Supervisors is both a city council member and also has this sort of oversight and budgetary powers of, you know, basically helping to finalize the city's budget and directing money where it should go. The mayor, to be clear, the mayor has the most power in the city. San Francisco has a very strong mayoral system. And she actually, for example, creates the budget first. So she creates the budget and then it goes to the board of supervisors. And then we either, we can remove things from the budget and add things to the budget and move money around. But at the end of the day, the mayor then also after after having created it and after us editing it has to go and sign it into law. So we have to come to an agreement. So again, the mayor has a lot of power and also the mayor is the one that directs all the departments. So she has the power, for example, with SFPD, you know, she, when there was a lot of retail theft that was happening in Union Square, specifically around the some of the luxury stores, you know, there was a very like organized crime ring thing happening. She directed SFPD to be increased their numbers in Union Square specifically. Mm-hmm. And she has the power to do that. She has the power to tell the police to go where they where they should go and do what they should do. So, you know, in some ways, I feel like sometimes the Board of Supervisors gets like blamed for things. And I'm like, oh, we don't have control over that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we You're can't like, tell uh, the department what to us. do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, also in politics, it's like we need more people who are just going to say, yeah, we're going to fix this and we're going to work together to fix this and not just blame each other. Right. And so I think, again, that's another reason why I'm running is because I think we need more people who are maybe less lawyers, more social workers. Mm, (laughs) You know what I mean? There's yeah. the like, please, like, we need a campaign ad with that, like, right across it. Thank you very much. Yeah. I do have a very technical question on the budget end of things. So yeah. say, for example, the mayor writes the budget, sends it to you guys. You send, you know, edits back and it goes back to her. Can she, like, send it back to you guys again? Like, could this be, like, a back and forth little, like, ping pong situation forever and always? Like, is there a way to veto <laughs> things? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, it's just like Congress in some ways, right? Like, so you know how they like shut down the government because the budget deal hasn't yeah. been created. So like, I can't remember the last time the city budget or the city government was shut down. I don't think it, that's usually we try and get the budget done by July 1st. And, but there is absolutely negotiations that happen, especially between the budget chair who, you know, my boss actually, my previous boss, I should say, was budget chair immediately before we left and for the previous year's budget. And so there was, you know, negotiation that happened between the mayor's office and, and our office. And always, there's usually a deal that's made to happen because nobody wants to look like they can't get a a budget passed. And again, in San Francisco, you know, we really all care about kind of the same things. It's just a matter of prioritization. And so there's a little bit of negotiation there, but yes, absolutely. There's a little bit of back and forth. I mean, San Mm -hmm. Francisco is a very wealthy city. It's a $14 billion a year budget, which is more than some country. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Well, let's get into it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it and talk a little bit of like housing crisis, homelessness. Can you kind of first paint the picture of like 
where the city of San Francisco is at right now regarding housing, but also kind of the homelessness crisis. And this has like so many tiers of understanding it from, you know, the lack of housing and landlords. But then there's also these, you know, kind of chronically homeless people on the streets that also need different resources. It's just a whole whole beast that I think needs to be, you know, talked about very comprehensively so can you just kind of give a state of like where the city of san francisco is at with all of that has thing have things gotten better or things gotten worse like where are we at yeah that's a really great question i mean so number one i think that san francisco is in a lot of trouble because we have been unable to really build enough housing here in order to meet the demand and also like this is not just a san francisco issue this is a statewide issue a regional issue really like we are our population has grown by like tens of millions of people in this state and you know our housing our housing availability has not it's grown by thousands not millions and so we really need to up our game in terms of how we're building housing in california and the state of california has actually basically decreed that, you know, they've given all of these cities goals, basically RENA goals to, you know, build a certain amount of housing. You know, San Francisco has to build, I believe it's like 80,000 units in, in the next three to five years. And we are really, really, really far behind on that. We are, God, we are really struggling. And I think part of it, so some of it is polit- politics, right? And sort of how we built housing and who we are building housing for and how much is market rate and how much is affordable and what does affordable mean? But some of it is also supply chain issues, you know, and we've all mm-hmm. seen that during COVID supply chain issues have been a huge problem for all kinds of businesses. But additionally, there's just been a ton of, you know, people like we don't also don't have the labor force. There aren't enough people to actually build as much housing as we need. And in San Francisco, it's particularly expensive for a variety of reasons, both in terms of how long it takes to get housing built, which time costs money. And then also in terms of all the permitting and, you know, all of that full red tape process getting exactly. It just, it takes really, really a long time. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that there has been, there have been some good projects that have been killed recently. And I think some of, sometimes it's for politics. And so I think that has to stop. Like we are in a housing crisis and that housing crisis directly contributes to our homelessness crisis. I mean, we know that if we, most of the people that are homeless in San Francisco, despite, I think, you know, I think word of mouth sort of like stories around like people being bussed in here. Most of the people that are homeless in San Francisco, 70% of them are from San Francisco or the San Francisco Bay area. Oh, really? That was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. It's, I mean, statistically. And so when you think about that, that's really scary. I mean, my family, you know, we grew you know, I, I grew up in San Francisco and there were about 30 of us that lived here. And now there's only two of us left. You know, many of many folks have left the city to yeah. either the East Bay or across the country because it's not really affordable for them to like buy a home here. And so I don't know, I, I, I just, it breaks my heart because San Francisco is such a magical place. It is a place that I grew up and I know can be a really wonderful place to raise a family. And unfortunately, I think over the years, it's just become less and less welcoming. And I just hear so many more people who are really frustrated with the city and want to leave the city And that's just, I mean, as someone who really loves this place, it's really heartbreaking to hear. Well, talking a little bit too about, you know, the chronically homeless people on the streets that I think regardless of where you are in the political spectrum, which for the most part in San Francisco, I feel like a lot of people are on the same page here, but there is a minus the fresh... like five Republicans you've gone on dates with by accident. But that 100%. is, yeah, we don't want to talk. Oh about my that. gosh, they totally exist here for real. They, as they I've been do. knocking on they doors, definitely do. <laughs> um, 
But anyways, the just as a voter, you know, I think, you know, living here, a lot of people do have this growing frustration of, you know, this kind of spread of the these chronically homeless people who do have these, you know, mental health issues, drug addiction yeah. issues that are starting to creep into neighborhoods where they've never really been before. And so I just think across the board, a lot of voters are probably, you know, looking at this issue of homelessness much more than ever. And I'm also curious, like you being a candidate, like what are some of the solutions right now like at all like I think there's a lot of frustration with that I know we talked about like the police a little bit and how you know they don't really do anything but can they even I feel like I've heard just so many things of like people blaming all these different people Mm -hmm. like it's just it's like okay what's can we just find a solution like what's going on yeah so my first job was working at Larkin Street Youth Services which is a homeless organization that deals specifically with homeless and at-risk youth ages I mean 13 through 24 and I was an outreach counselor so I would like go out onto the streets and you know basically talk to folks who were homeless and try and get them into shelter or even just get them to walk into the door to our community center and our drop-in space so that they could get services and get a case manager and eventually get into housing. It is, I think, not just a San Francisco issue, but like a big city issue, especially a West Coast issue. Like we're seeing this in, like when I went to visit Portland and Seattle, like they're kind of dealing with the same thing that we are. And I think a lot of it like is really that we, the city, cities have become so unaffordable and it like for example youth in san francisco or homeless youth i believe 40 percent of them identify as lgbtq and that's not representative of the population but it's because so many people come to san francisco because they've been kicked out of their homes for being queer because they don't feel safe in their hometowns and they come here thinking that they're going to be safe and be able to build a life for themselves and they end up on the streets we've done i know that it like things are really painful right now but we, when we passed Prop C, our city, our home, which was a tax on, which was a tax that would fund like literally tens of millions of dollars every year to go towards building housing, deeply affordable housing to house homeless folks and also families. That actually was held up for many years because there were, these companies were suing because it was a gross receipts tax. These companies were suing the city and saying that, you know, you can't, you know, it didn't pass by a high enough percentage and you, you can't tax us this money. And so they held on to that. We just got it, I think, a couple of years ago where we were able to finally access some of those funds. And then now we're in the process of literally like purchasing property and building that housing. But again, there's all these supply chain issues and things like that. And like, it's yeah. been really, really hard. So I think change is coming, but certainly there are a couple things that we really, really need to be focused on in addition to building more housing. And I think number one is what I talked about earlier, which is the mental health system. I mean, yeah. We, there are thousands of people on the streets in addiction, like in in the throes of addiction due to the fentanyl crisis that is plaguing our nation right now. There are thousands of people suffering from mental health crises on our streets. And my partner was a nurse practitioner who who used to work in the psych ward of San Francisco General Hospital. And, you know, he would tell me like, yeah, you know, the psych ward was always just, it was full. And a lot of the people who would come in to the emergency room would get triaged and then basically there's no place to put them. There's no bed to refer them to. They get put back out onto the street and we have to stop that. So we have to prioritize not just creating mental health beds, because in some cases, in some ways, that's easy. But the city also has to commit to hiring people to actually do the work of taking care of patients, because I've talked to providers. I've worked with providers across the city and the number and I've been a provider (laughs) and the number one thing 
thing that comes up time and time again is that, yeah, okay, so the city's paying for 100 mental health beds, but they're only paying us to staff 10 of them. So what happens is these workers get burnt out because they're forced into overtime. Um, They're not getting paid. It's a hard job. Mm. They're not getting paid enough. And, you, you know, and so the really qualified people don't even go there. And the people yeah. who do go there are pretty new and green and trying to figure things out and they're overwhelmed. And so that is setting us up for failure. And we have to stop setting ourselves up for failure. We need to say, okay, this is something that's important to us. And it's worth fully investing in making sure that our mental health system is up to par and can handle the crisis on our streets. Because once we do that, once we said, say, this is a priority, then yeah, we can get people in beds. We can get people into treatment and actually stabilize people instead of just turning them back out onto the streets in hospital gowns and having them the cycle repeat repeat over and over and over again. We feel like we're in a hamster wheel because we literally are, because we are not actually addressing the issue. Yeah, Yeah. I feel, because that makes sense. It's like, if you're only doing it a percentage of the way, like how are you expecting the larger result to work? Like it's, and I feel like it's also unfair too, because it's one of the, I mean, it's unfair in a lot of different ways, but especially in the way where then people can go, oh, see, it doesn't work. It's like, well, it doesn't work because we're just not funding it correctly. We're not actually doing it in full. So that's where I feel like this blame game comes in because everyone's like, every solution sucks. It's like, well, the solutions don't suck. They just have to be like put into place the right way. That's exactly it. The question in terms of funding that I have is, where is this another scenario where like the mayor's budget comes back in mind like how does like now the funding got approved some of the money like trickled in like where does that come from and then like do the supervisors disperse that into particular areas like what is that like how does that policy then get like made and put into place yeah i mean so so yeah i mean it's Listen, if it was easy, I think we definitely would have done it by now. It's not necessarily easy. But I think here's here. There's a couple things. One is that we spend so much money on emergency services, right? Emergency services are the, the literally the most expensive thing that we can that we can do. And so if we actually front the money to invest in creating these long like preventative services and also you know prevention and treatment services instead of just relying on the emergency services then you will save millions of dollars in emergency services and also be able to staff you know remove folks from staff from emergency services and redirect them to more like regular care we do have to find the money from somewhere. And, you know, sometimes that means a tax, but ultimately I think it sometimes also means that we may have to sacrifice from somewhere else. So where does this money come from? That's that's really where the debate is. And, you know, when we mm. talked about like, I think years ago when folks were talking about defunding the police, that was the conversation that they were having. Like, well, instead of spending this money on police, maybe we can spend it on mental health yeah. so that we can actually not like so we can prevent the crisis from happening and not have to deal with it through police right personally i think that police are a part of the solution like they have yeah. to be especially as someone who has worked in the tenderloin as someone who's who lives and works and has a small business in south of market like there absolutely is a role for the police and also like we need to in order we should be taking stuff off of their plates and helping make their job easier by actually getting these services into place the mayor absolutely gets the first whack at this. She can say like, yes, all right, part of my, my the mayor's proposed budget includes like fully funding mental health San Francisco so that we can have, you know, all of these services. And that means that maybe there isn't extra money for other sort of pet projects or side projects or new projects, but, but this is a priority. 
And this is what we're going to be focused on. And whatever else we wanted to do, that can wait another two or three years. Because unless we are able to get our streets in shape and get people yeah. the care that they need, that won't matter anyway. Mm-hmm. Totally. I also have a question, too, just about getting people the care that they need. And like you said, like there is this huge shortage of mental health beds and mental health staff and all of that. But I have I have a question kind of on the side of, you know, the people who need these services. Like, are they willing to accept this help? Is that kind of a barrier sometimes that like you can't, like they don't accept the help, they don't go into some of these services or shelters. And then even if you, you know, it is an emergency situation, they have to go to the emergency room or, you know, be hospitalized. Then obviously, like you said, they're put back on the street. Like is, isn't there kind of short-term solutions that need to be done where like these people need to be, you know, kind of put somewhere, but then it's like, it's also like not a crime. So you can't make them stay somewhere. So what's like the solution for that? Because... I think there is probably a big issue there, a barrier of people actually accepting the help and getting off the street. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think this is a complicated question because number one, and I'm happy to answer it, but it it does take a little bit of a second. One is like in social, in like, there are people that I think are referred to as like care or service resistant who, you know, may refuse service and what I have found is that those people aren't actually service resistant, but that they're just they're, they they have trust issues because they've been hurt so many times and abused so many times by the system. And so it takes time to build relationships with folks and get them into care and get them to trust you so that they can get into care. And there are many organizations that do that deep work. Unfortunately, it does take a lot of time. And sometimes we don't have that time both for that person, like literally that person could die before we get that done. And then also for like what's happening on our streets. Like it's, it's, it is like... As much as I have sympathy for folks who are going through crises on our streets, I also have deep sympathy for people who are, you know, living in the tenderloin, have kids, you know, and experiencing that trauma like secondhand. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. So I have, I have compassion for both. And in order to like, in order to, you know, I think come up with an equitable solution, we have to say like, okay, well, we can offer services. We can try to get people into care. We can even like do it several times. But at some point, like we also have to recognize that people aren't able to make, some people are not able to make decisions for themselves. Like some people you can say, okay, like, you know, we've given you three chances. Like you really can't come back here again. You have to go, you know, you need to go to the shelter. You need to go into this, you know, treatment program. But if you, but if people aren't able to process that, like, then they probably need to be committed, right? Or, you know, they need to be put into a program where they are allowed, where they're given the care that they need in order to become stabilized so that they can start making decisions for themselves. And that's a, you know, that's broadly referred to as conservatorship. So the, where the city basically takes response, says you cannot take responsibility for yourself. So we are going to take responsibility for you and take care of you and get you better. And then we will be, you'll be evaluated. And once you're able to make those decisions on your own, you know, hopefully we can transition you into a a different type of care facility, supportive housing, where you can still get support through social workers and things like that, but have more independence. And then maybe eventually even transition out of that into more permanent housing. Is there something like that in place right now in San Francisco where you have like a three strike, like conservatorship that's no, something that needs to be done we don't have a conservatorship to the best of my knowledge so 
this has been proposed before. I mean, right now, for example, like the governor is doing its, you know, care court program, which is a pilot program. Have you heard about this, Governor Newsom? Okay, so I don't, I'm not up to date on all the, all the specifics. I still need to do my research as well. But basically, it, it is for people who are chronically suffering from mental health and substance abuse issues. And basically, instead of be, being just, you know, arrested and put in jail, they're actually given, put into these care court programs where they are, you know, assigned a public defender and a social worker, and they, you know, basically come up with a deal and a care plan on how they're going to, you know, enter into recovery. It is, it is an ambitious plan. It's going to take a lot of funding, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, you yeah. know, as if it's done right, I think it could be really successful. I think, um, so too. I think that's a issue. solution I've heard from a lot of people who are like, you know, every time I talk to my family or friends about this issue, I feel like that's a, a solution that a lot of people come up with. So that'll be interesting to see what that, what, where that plays out. But we can move on to our transgender district, which we touched on a little bit before. And we want to hear way more from you about this. So you founded this. For those who don't know, can you give us the spiel of like, what is this? What, what's going on here? So I talked about this a little bit earlier. I really got involved in sort of community organizing in San Francisco through the stud and saving that, right? And it was really about like preserving LGBTQ space and businesses because, you know, what I, as someone who, you know, have been a part of the nightlife scene here for quite a while, was seeing a lot of my friends move out of town. A lot of my friends were, you know, just could no longer afford to live here, but also like a lot of our businesses were shutting down. And this was not something that was even specific to San Francisco. This was something that was happening across the country. And so we were able to save the stud, but we knew that this was part of a larger issue. And so we thought about the idea of cultural districts and how, you know, actually empowering communities that have traditionally been left out of the conversation that have not necessarily been, you know, have their contributions acknowledged, but also have not been a part of the planning process for their neighborhoods, like actively, we wanted to give those communities power and a voice. And so, you know, there were some cultural districts that already existed sort of a little bit more informally like Calle 24, which is the Latino cultural district in the mission, Suma Filipinas, Japantown. And we endeavored to create the transcultural district in the Tenderloin because the Tenderloin was an area that was, you know, quickly undergoing a lot of change, you know, six, seven years ago. And we were really afraid that what was going to happen was that all of these folks all of these trans people, queer people, poor people were going to get completely displaced and, and their history was going to get erased and all those businesses were going to go and it was just going to become sort of like, you know, basically like whitewashed and completely, you yeah. know, just become another like, I don't know. Uh, gentrified area gentrified. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> like you know all due respect to the marina but we didn't want another marina right i mean we, we already have one marina yeah we, we wanted we, we want to make sure that we also have a tenderloin and that doesn't necessarily mean it can't be nice right like oh, this yeah. was a this was a key thing for me is that like just because folks living in this neighborhood are poor or working class doesn't mean they can't have nice things or nice streets or clean and safe streets right and so that's why we created the the cultural district to really honor the history that happened there, but also to ensure that it was a place that had, you know, safe and clean streets that were really kind of from a community-based plan that the community got to dictate what that looked like and what what services it wanted and you know what kind of businesses it wanted to see and the community these communities also had access to seed seed funding to you know be entrepreneurs and start their own businesses that served their community that they had access to housing within their the neighborhood that they were already living in right like that when new housing was built that they were able to move in there this 
I should maybe back up a little bit and say that the reason that we chose the Tenderloin was because, you know, in San Francisco, we have had a long history of LGBTQ activism and people have come here from across the country and the world because it is sort of an LGBTQ Mecca. Some of the states back to the gold rush because I mean, yeah, like if you think about it, so during the gold rush, right, a lot of people came to San Francisco to get gold and, you know, get wealthy and all of that. But it was a lot of men. There were not a lot of women out here. Um, Interesting. And, yeah. Okay. Um, right. right. So, I mean, and then some, I mean, the women, a lot of the women that did come here in the beginning, you know, a lot of them ended up being sex workers and madams. And some of them were also queer themselves and, and did not want or need husbands, but also knew like, this is, this is a really great way to make money and have a business with all these men. So there was just a lot of queerness, even in the very founding, I think of San Francisco and also like. I just have to mention, like, obviously there was like the Ohlone Ramatush people were here way before that. But when we're talking about San Francisco as a city, as it is now, you know, that was sort of the beginning and there was a lot of queerness in that process. There are also, and then of course, also like over the years, San Francisco became a huge port and a naval base. And this was actually a lot of place where a lot of people would be discharged. And so when they were discharged here in the Bay Area, some of them may have been discharged, dishonorably discharged because they were queer, especially in the 50s and 60s. This is where they would be dropped off and this is where they would stay and they created a community here. And San Francisco at that time, like many cities across the country, had public decency laws, which were basically said that like, if you were going to be in public, you had to be look a certain way, right? And so this is where like, racism, like mm. homo, homo and transphobia, a, a bill, like uh, people who are even disabled, like if you were disfigured, like technically, like you weren't supposed to show your face in public, I guess, like, or you Gosh. had to hide it somehow. You had to dress a certain way. If you were, for example, caught like wearing like clothing that didn't match the sex that you were assigned at birth, you could be like arrested, right? I mean, that's well documented. And so that existed in San Francisco, but one of the areas where they really didn't enforce the law was the tenderloin. But it's just so interesting because when you look at like disenfranchised communities and what sort of happens, like how it's sort of like, people are forced to participate in alternative economies when they're not allowed to participate in the regular economy, right? And that has happened again, time and again, throughout history with different communities and different people, like different faces, but the, 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 the game is the same, right? People are gonna do whatever they have to do to survive. So, tenderloin, it was sort of a little bit of an area where vice was allowed to happen. And so that meant that sex work was allowed to happen, but also like during prohibition, gambling and alcohol and speakeasies were all in the tenderloin and LGBT people were allowed to be there too, because, you know, when you're an LGBT person, like, again, you're, if you look, if you're like, like they didn't have the word trans then, but if you're trans at that time, like no one's going to hire you. So what do you do? You go to the vice industry. There's a lot of folks who turn to sex work again, because at that time, especially there were not like, it was hard to be openly queer, right? And so some, the only, you probably got married or did whatever, and then you found your way to like act out. And a lot of the time it was through sex work or sex workers. And so that was the tenderloin and it created a really strong, you know, LGBTQ community, a little hub. And then in the fifties and sixties, there was a place called the Compton's cafeteria. And again, this was the time before cell phones and even people had like, you know, they didn't really even have like 
regular phones, landlines, like in all of these SROs in the, uh, single residency, single resident occupancy buildings. And so people really had to just sort of meet up in public in order to check in on each other. And the Compton's cafeteria was a late night diner and cafe where people would go and hang out and check in on each other. And like any business that frequent has customers that are LGBT or, you know, is seen as alternative and transgressive at the time, the police would come in and harass business owners for bribes so that they could continue operating their business and wouldn't bother their clients. And I mean, that's actually why it was called the Tenderloin because the, ten the Tenderloin was the area where the police could make the more money. It was the juiciest cut of, cut of meat. So that, that's where the name Tenderloin comes I've from. I've been dying to know why the Tenderloin <laughs> was called the Tenderloin. Like every time I look at like a map and I'm like pulling down like, okay, that's the neighborhood over here, blah, 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 whatever. I'm like what? It was not the, the meatpacking district. It was not yeah, the meatpacking district. It was because it was it was where the police could get the most money because there were the most illicit businesses mm, there. Not this either. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. and so <laughs> just like what happened at Stonewall, like the police came in. Well, it wasn't exactly the same because in Stonewall, you know, the police kind of came in and uh, in a horde and started beating up on people. Here, there was just one cop who was throwing his weight around and, you know, harassing some of the clients. And there was drag queen that was there and she was fed up. And when the cop came to harass her in 1966, she ended up taking her coffee and throwing it in his face. And that started a big fight in the cafe. That, that fight broke out into the street and it started a several day riot right here in San Francisco in 1966, which, sorry, New York, but was three years before Stonewall. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know stonewall was really i think the at the so there were several other rights before stonewall there was you know the cooper's donuts riots there were a couple others that happened across the country but you know it was that 1969 riot that i think really sort of like fomented this sort of like constant like it was the beginning of like the real conversation around lgbt rights but mm. again like leading there were a lot of smaller battles like the compton's cafeteria riot that happened here in san francisco that actually i think empowered and led up to the 1969 Stonewall riot. So it's a really important part of history. Yeah. Technically, we're like the first, I think, officially documented because we had some newspaper articles written about it. The first officially documented collective LGBTQ uprising in the country. And so we wanted to honor that. We created this trans cultural district around it. And to this day, the Tenderloin is the place where personally I feel safest walking around because I, you know, when I walk around there, people are like, hi, sis, like, how you doing? Oh, you look good today. Like, you know, it's like, they understand, like, regardless of if I'm like, I'm not wearing makeup today, but like, regardless if I'm not wearing makeup, whatever I look like, people see me and read me and understand me. Mm. That's not necessarily the case on other neighborhoods. Being someone that is gender non-conforming or trans, that in the tenderloin, you just, it, it goes away. Like you don't deal with that because it is a predominantly people of color community. It is a predominantly queer and trans community and it is such a melting pot. And that's what's so beautiful about the Tenderloin. Yeah. Like you have conservative, like Arab and Muslim folk, conservative, like Chinese folks, Southeast Asian folks, Black folks, Latino folks, all queer folks, trans folks, all living together, all supporting each other. 
in like mostly in harmony. And yes, Mm -hmm. there is the stuff, this craziness happening on the streets. There's open air drug dealing and drug use and homelessness and craziness. But underneath that, and even in spite of that, there is this tremendous, tremendous community that is just so powerful and resilient and has really pushed for change. And I was really proud to like get to do some of that work because the Tenderloin used to be part of District 6 and it no longer is, but you know, it will always have a place in my heart. Yeah, I love hearing all of that. That's super cool. Well, this has been such a great deep dive. And (laughs) like we said at the beginning, like we just, we knew that we were going to be chatting for some time and that this wasn't even going to be able to be covered in just one episode. So we look forward to having you back on to continue this conversation. There are so many, I'm sure, updates to all of these topics that we'll need to continue on. But in the meantime, where can people find you? Where can people support your campaign? Like, give us the the plug, the four on one. Absolutely. Well, I just I, I want to say like you know thanks again so much for having me on this, and absolutely please do have me back. I have had so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, yeah, absolutely. You guys are wonderful. So thank you so much. And I so so folks can learn more about my campaign and 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 look me up and and donate at honeymahogany.com. You know, our campaign is it's you know things are going really well. I think we have a real chance at winning. But campaigns take a lot of money. And so if folks can donate, the maximum donation is $500, which I know is a lot for some people, but it's not a lot for everybody. And you know, you can donate as little as $5. Every last dollar helps. It helps us reach voters through mailers through through ads and also through walk pieces. So printing costs are very expensive. You know, hiring staff is very expensive. We want to make sure to pay people what they deserve and they're working very, very hard, very long hours. So anything you can do would be great. Also, if you live in San Francisco and you want to volunteer, we have phone banking, door knocking, lit dropping opportunities for you. So please go to honeymahogany.com and, you know, check us out and get involved. Just really quickly about my candidacy. Like I... I am super excited to be to be running. You know, it's it's interesting because my rate in my race, I don't talk a lot about my identity. I just talk about my like what I want to do and my experience because I think that speaks yeah. for itself. Totally. Um, and also, like I think it's really cool that we have the opportunity to really make history here in, in San Francisco because there's never been a trans person elected to the board of supervisors, specifically a, a black trans woman, in ever. And in San Francisco, we've never had a trans person elected to the board of supervisors or, or, or really elected beyond, you know, the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee. So we have an opportunity to make history here. And if I am elected, I'd be the highest ranking black trans woman in the country and wow. you know yeah and that's crazy I, actually to think about it is crazy well you know it's interestingly enough and you know i feel like you have to kind of toot your own horn in these situations Absolutely. but like yeah. i was actually the first trans person to ever be chair of any local democratic county central committee across the country and in san francisco i was also the first black person to be the chair of the central committee here so it's it's been it's been interesting like i i've yeah. been I've been really humbled to know that I've been able to do that and break down those barriers. And also like, I just feel like there's so much more work to do. Totally. Um, and so I'm ready to do it. Yes. Let's fucking go. It. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It was an honor. Thanks and for having me. Yes. We'll, Where we'll can I get those pink, like, mo- like, we'll send things. you, unfortunately it is an Amazon purchase. We'll, yeah, we'll send, we'll <laughs> send me a link. I am going to get one for my, for my microphone. Yes. yes. Okay. Perfect.
Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.